part ten of volume one of plutarch's parallel lives this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman Volume 1 of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans Translated by Bernadotte Perrin Lycurgus, Part 3 In time of war, too, they relaxed the severity of the young men's discipline, and permitted them to beautify their hair and ornament their arms and clothing, rejoicing to see them, like horses, prance and neigh for the contest. Therefore they wore their hair long as soon as they ceased to be youths, and particularly in times of danger they took pains to have it glossy and well combed, remembering a certain saying of Lycurgus, that a fine head of hair made the handsome more comely still, and the ugly more terrible. Their bodily exercises, too, were less rigorous during their campaigns, and in other ways their young warriors were allowed a regimen which was less curtailed and rigid, so that they were the only men in the world with whom war brought a respite in the training for war. And when at last they were drawn up in battle array and the enemy was at hand, the king sacrificed the customary she-goat, commanded all the warriors to set garlands upon their heads, and ordered the pipers to pipe the strains of the hymn to Castor. Then he himself led off in a marching paean, and it was a sight equally grand and terrifying when they marched in step with the rhythm of the flute, without any gap in their line of battle, and with no confusion in their souls, but calmly and cheerfully moving with the strains of their hymn into the deadly fight. Neither fear nor excessive fury is likely to possess men so disposed, but rather a firm purpose full of hope and courage, believing as they do that heaven is their ally. The king marched against the enemy in close companionship with one who had been crowned victor in the great games and they tell of a certain Spartan who refused to be bought off from a contest at Olympia by large sums of money, and after a long struggle out-wrestled his antagonist. When someone said to him then, What advantage, O Spartan, hast thou got from thy victory? He answered with a smile, I shall stand in front of my king when I fight our enemies. When they had conquered and routed an enemy, they pursued him far enough to make their victory secure by his flight, and then at once retired, thinking it ignoble and unworthy of a Hellene to hew men to pieces who had given up the fight and abandoned the field. And this was not only a noble and magnanimous policy, but it was also useful. For their antagonists, knowing that they slew those who resisted them, but showed mercy to those who yielded to them, were apt to think flight more advantageous than resistance. Hippias the Sophist says that Lycurgus himself was very well versed in war, and took part in many campaigns, and Philostephanus attributes to him the arrangement of the Spartan cavalry by Ulamoi, explaining that the Ulamos, as constituted by him, 
was a troop of fifty horsemen in a square formation. But Demetrius the Falerian says he engaged in no warlike undertakings, and established his constitution in a time of peace. And indeed, the design of the Olympic truce would seem to bespeak a man of gentleness and predisposed to peace. And yet there are some who say, as Hermippus reminds us, that at the outset Lycurgus had nothing whatever to do with Iphitus and his enterprise, but happened to come that way by chance and be a spectator at the games. That he heard behind him, however, what seemed to be a human voice, chiding him and expressing amazement that he did not urge his fellow-citizens to take part in the great festival. And since, on turning round, he did not see the speaker anywhere, he concluded that the voice was from heaven, and therefore betook himself to Iphitus, and assisted him in giving the festival a more notable arrangement and a more enduring basis. The training of the Spartans lasted into the years of full maturity. No man was allowed to live as he pleased, but in their city, as in a military encampment, they always had a prescribed regimen and employment in public service, considering that they belonged entirely to their country and not to themselves, watching over the boys if no other duty was laid upon them, and either teaching them some useful thing, or learning it themselves from their elders. For one of the noble and blessed privileges which Lycurgus provided for his fellow-citizens was abundance of leisure, since he forbade their engaging in any mechanical art whatsoever, and as for money-making, with its laborious efforts to amass wealth, there was no need of it at all, since wealth awakened no envy and brought no honour. Besides, the helots tilled their ground for them and paid them the produce mentioned above. Therefore it was that one of them who was sojourning at Athens when the courts were in session and learned that a certain Athenian had been fined for idleness, and was going home in great distress of mind, and attended on his way by sympathetic and sorrowing friends, begged the bystanders to show him the man who had been fined for living like a free man. So servile a thing did they regard the devotion to the mechanical arts and to money-making and lawsuits of course vanished from among them with their gold and silver coinage, for they knew neither greed nor want, but equality in well-being was established there, and easy living based on simple wants. Choral dances and feasts and festivals and hunting and bodily exercise and social converse occupied their whole time when they were not on a military expedition. Those who were under thirty years of age did not go into the marketplace at all, but had their household wants supplied at the hands of their kinsfolk and lovers. And it was disreputable for the elderly men to be continually seen loitering there, instead of spending the greater part of the day in the places of exercise that are called lesci, for if they gathered in these they spent their time suitably with one another, making no allusions to the problems of money-making or of exchange, 
nay they were chiefly occupied there in praising some noble action or censuring some base one with jesting and laughter which made the path to instruction and correction easy and natural for not even lycurgus himself was immoderately severe indeed sir sibius tells us that he actually dedicated a little statue of laughter and introduced seasonable jesting into their drinking parties and like diversions to sweeten as it were their hardships and meagre fare in a word he trained his fellow-citizens to have neither the wish nor the ability to live for themselves but like bees they were to make themselves always integral parts of the whole community clustering together about their leader almost beside themselves with enthusiasm and noble ambition and to belong wholly to their country this idea can be traced also in some of their utterances for instance pedaritus when he failed to be chosen among the three hundred best men went away with a very glad countenance as if rejoicing that the city had three hundred better men than himself and again polycratidas one of an embassy to the generals of the persian king on being asked by them whether the embassy was there in a private or a public capacity replied if we succeed in a public capacity if we fail in a private again argilionis the mother of brasidas when some amphipolitans who had come to sparta paid her a visit asked them if brasidas had died nobly and in a manner worthy of sparta then they greatly extolled the man and said that sparta had not such another to which she answered say not so strangers brasidas was noble and brave but Sparta has many better men than he. The senators were at first appointed by Lycurgus himself, as I have said, from those who shared his counsels, but afterwards he arranged that any vacancy caused by death should be filled by the man elected as most deserving out of those above sixty years of age. And of all the contests in the world, this would seem to have been the greatest and the most hotly disputed. For it was not the swiftest of the swift, nor the strongest of the strong, but the best and wisest of the good and wise who was to be elected, and have for the rest of his life as a victor's prize for excellence, what I may call the supreme power in the state, lord as he was of life and death, honour and dishonour and all the greatest issues of life the election was made in the following manner an assembly of the people having been convened chosen men were shut up in a room near by so that they could neither see nor be seen but only hear the shouts of the assembly for as in other matters so here the cries of the assembly decided between the competitors these did not appear in a body, but each one was introduced separately as the lot fell, and passed silently through the assembly. Then the secluded judges, who had writing tablets with them, recorded in each case the loudness of the shouting, not knowing for whom it was given, but only that he was introduced first, second, or third, and so on. 
Whoever was greeted with the most and loudest shouting, him they declared elected. The victor then set a wreath upon his head and visited in order the temples of the gods. He was followed by great numbers of young men who praised and extolled him, as well as by many women who celebrated his excellence in songs and dwelt on the happiness of his life. Each of his relations and friends set a repast before him, saying, The city honours thee with this table. When he had finished his circuit, he went off to his mess-table. Here he fared in other ways as usual, but a second portion of food was set before him, which he took and put by. After the supper was over, the women who were related to him being now assembled at the door of the mess-hall, he called to him the one whom he most esteemed, and gave her the portion he had saved, saying that he had received it as a meed of excellence, and as such gave it to her. Upon this she too was lauded by the rest of the women, and escorted by them to her home. Furthermore, Lycurgus made most excellent regulations in the matter of their burials, to begin with, he did away with all superstitious terror by allowing them to bury their dead within the city and to have memorials of them near the sacred places, thus making the youth familiar with such sites and accustomed to them, so that they were not confounded by them and had no horror of death as polluting those who touched a corpse or walked among graves. In the second place, he permitted nothing to be buried with the dead, they simply covered the body with a scarlet robe and olive leaves when they laid it away. To inscribe the name of the dead upon the tomb was not allowed, unless it were that of a man who had fallen in war, or that of a woman who had died in sacred office. He set apart only a short time for mourning, eleven days. On the twelfth they were to sacrifice to Demeter and cease their sorrowing. Indeed, nothing was left untouched and neglected, but with all the necessary details of life he blended some commendation of virtue or rebuke of vice, and he filled the city full of good examples whose continual presence and society must of necessity exercise a controlling and moulding influence upon those who were walking the path of honour. This was the reason why he did not permit them to live abroad at their pleasure and wander in strange lands, assuming foreign habits and imitating the lives of peoples who were without training and lived under different forms of government. Nay, more, he actually drove away from the city the multitudes which streamed in there for no useful purpose, not because he feared they might become imitators of his form of government and learn useful lessons in virtue, as Thucydides says, but rather that they might not become in any wise teachers of evil. For along with strange people, strange doctrines must come in, and novel doctrines bring novel decisions from which there must arise many feelings and resolutions which destroy the harmony of the existing political order. Therefore he thought it more necessary to keep bad manners and customs from invading and filling the city than it was to keep out infectious diseases. 
Now in all this there is no trace of injustice or arrogance which some attribute to the laws of Lycurgus, declaring them efficacious in producing valour, but defective in producing righteousness. The so-called cryptia, or secret service of the Spartans, if this be really one of the institutions of Lycurgus, as Aristotle says it was, may have given Plato also this opinion of the man and his civil polity. This secret service was of the following nature. The magistrates from time to time sent out into the country at large the most discreet of the young warriors, equipped only with daggers and such supplies as were necessary. In the daytime they scattered into obscure and out-of-the-way places where they hid themselves and lay quiet, but in the night they came down into the highways and killed every helot whom they caught. Oftentimes, too, they actually traversed the fields where helots were working and slew the sturdiest and best of them. So, too, Thucydides, in his history of the Peloponnesian War, tells us that the helots, who had been judged by the Spartans to be superior in bravery, set wreaths upon their heads in token of their emancipation, and visited the temples of the gods in procession. But a little while afterwards all disappeared, more than two thousand of them, in such a way that no man was able to say, either then or afterwards, how they came by their deaths. And Aristotle in particular says also that the ephors, as soon as they came into office, made formal declaration of war upon the helots, in order that there might be no impiety in slaying them. And in other ways also they were harsh and cruel to the helots. For instance, they would force them to drink too much strong wine, and then introduce them into their public messes, to show the young men what a thing drunkenness was. They also ordered them to sing songs and dance dances that were low and ridiculous, but to let the nobler kind alone. And therefore in later times they say, when the Thebans made their expedition into Laconia, they ordered the helots whom they captured to sing the songs of Terpanda, Alcman, and Spendone the Spartan. But they declined to do so on the plea that their masters did not allow it thus proving the correctness of the saying, In Sparta the free man is more a free man than anywhere else in the world, and the slave more a slave. However, in my opinion, such cruelties were first practised by the Spartans in later times, particularly after the great earthquake, when the Helots and Messenians together rose up against them, wrought the widest devastation in their territory, and brought their city into the greatest peril. I certainly cannot ascribe to Lycurgus so abominable a measure as the Cryptia, judging of his character from his mildness and justice in all other instances. To this the voice of the god also bore witness. When his principal institutions were at last firmly fixed in the customs of the people, and his civil polity had sufficient growth and strength to support and preserve itself, just as Plato says that deity was rejoiced to see his universe come into being and make its first motion, 
so Lycurgus was filled with joyful satisfaction in the magnitude and beauty of his system of laws, now that it was in operation and moving along its pathway. He therefore ardently desired, so far as human forethought could accomplish the task, to make it immortal and let it go down unchanged to future ages. Accordingly he assembled the whole people, and told them that the provisions already made were sufficiently adapted to promote the prosperity and virtue of the state, but that something of the greatest weight and importance remained, which he could not lay before them until he had consulted the god at Delphi. They must therefore abide by the established laws, and make no change nor alteration in them until he came back from Delphi in person. Then he would do whatever the god thought best. When they all agreed to this and bade him set out on his journey, he exacted an oath from the kings and the senators, and afterwards from the rest of the citizens, that they would abide by the established polity, and observe it until Lycurgus should come back. Then he set out for Delphi. On reaching the oracle he sacrificed to the god, and asked if the laws which he had established were good and sufficient to promote a city's prosperity and virtue. Apollo answered that the laws which he had established were good, and that the city would continue to be held in highest honour while it kept to the polity of Lycurgus. This oracle Lycurgus wrote down and sent it to Sparta. But for his own part, he sacrificed again to the god, took affectionate leave of his friends and of his son, and resolved never to release his fellow-citizens from their oath, but of his own accord to put an end to his life where he was. He had reached an age in which life was not yet a burden, and death no longer a terror, when he and his friends, moreover, appeared to be sufficiently prosperous and happy. He therefore abstained from food till he died, considering that even the death of a statesman should be of service to the state, and the ending of his life not void of effect, but recognized as a virtuous deed. As for himself, since he had wrought out fully the noblest tasks, the end of life would actually be a consummation of his good fortune and happiness, and as for his fellow-citizens, he would make his death the guardian, as it were, of all the blessings he had secured for them during his life, since they had sworn to observe and maintain his polity until he should return. And he was not deceived in his expectations, so long did his city have the first rank in Hellas for good government and reputation, observing as she did for five hundred years the laws of Lycurgus, in which no one of the fourteen kings who followed him made any change down to Aegis the son of Archidamus. For the institution of the ephors did not weaken, but rather strengthened the civil polity, and though it was thought to have been done in the interests of the people, it really made the aristocracy more powerful. But in the reign of Aegis gold and silver money first flowed into Sparta, and with money greed and a desire for wealth prevailed through the agency of Lysander, who, though incorruptible himself, 
filled his country with the love of riches and with luxury, by bringing home gold and silver from the war, and thus subverting the laws of Lycurgus. While these remained in force, Sparta led the life not of a city under a constitution, but of an individual man under training and full of wisdom. Nay, rather, as the poets weave their tales of Heracles, how with his club and lion's skin he traversed the world, chastising lawless and savage tyrants, so we may say that Sparta, simply with the dispatch staff and cloak of her envoys, kept Hellas in willing and glad obedience, put down illegal oligarchies and tyrannies in the different states, arbitrated wars and quelled seditions, often without so much as moving a single shield, but merely sending one ambassador, whose commands all at once obeyed, just as bees, when their leader appears, swarm together and array themselves about him. Such a surplus fund of good government and justice did the city enjoy. Wherefore, I for one am amazed at those who declare that the Lacedaemonians knew how to obey, but did not understand how to command, and quote with approval the story of King Theopompus, who, when someone said that Sparta was safe and secure because her kings knew how to command, replied, Nay, rather because her citizens know how to obey. For men will not consent to obey those who have not the ability to rule, but obedience is a lesson to be learned from a commander. For a good leader makes good followers, and just as the final attainment of the art of horsemanship is to make a horse gentle and tractable, so it is the task of the science of government to implant obedience in men and the Lacedaemonians implanted in the rest of the Greeks not only a willingness to obey, but a desire to be their followers and subjects. People did not send requests to them for ships or money or hoplites, but for a single Spartan commander, and when they got him they treated him with honour and reverence, as the Sicilians treated Gylippus, the Chalcidians Brasidas, and all the Greeks resident in Asia, Lysander, Callicratidas, and Agesilaus. These men, wherever they came, were styled regulators and chasteners of people and magistrates, and the city of Sparta from which they came was regarded as a teacher of well-ordered private life and settled civil polity. To this position of Sparta, Stratonicus would seem to have mockingly alluded when, in jest, he proposed a law that the Athenians should conduct mysteries and processions, and that the Eleans should preside at games, since herein lay their special excellence, but that the Lacedaemonians should be cudgelled if the others did amiss. This was a joke, but Antisthenes the Socratic, when he saw the Thebans in high feather after the battle of Leuctra, said in all seriousness that they were just like little boys, strutting about because they had thrashed their tutor. It was not, however, the chief design of Lycurgus then to leave his city in command over a great many others, but he thought that the happiness of an entire city, like that of a single individual, 
depended on the prevalence of virtue and concord within its own borders. The aim, therefore, of all his arrangements and adjustments was to make his people free-minded, self-sufficing, and moderate in all their ways, and to keep them so as long as possible. His design for a civil polity was adopted by Plato, Diogenes, Zeno, and by all those who have won approval for their treatises on this subject, although they left behind them only writings and words. Lycurgus, on the other hand, produced not writings and words, but an actual polity which was beyond imitation, and because he gave, to those who maintain that the much-talked-of natural disposition to wisdom exists only in theory, an example of an entire city given to the love of wisdom, his fame rightly transcended that of all who ever founded polities among the Greeks. Therefore Aristotle says that the honours paid him in Sparta were less than he deserved, although he enjoys the highest honours there. For he has a temple, and sacrifices are offered to him yearly as to a god. It is also said that when his remains were brought home, his tomb was struck by lightning, and that this hardly happened to any other eminent man after him except Euripides, who died and was buried at Arethusa in Macedonia. The lovers of Euripides therefore regard it as a great testimony in his favour that he alone experienced after death what had earlier befallen a man who was most holy and beloved of the gods. Some say that Lycurgus died in Syra, Apollothemis that he was brought to Elis and died there, Timaeus and Aristoxenus that he ended his days in Crete, and Aristoxenus adds that his tomb is shown by the Cretans in the district of Pergamus near the public highway. It is also said that he left an only son, Antiorus, on whose death without issue the family became extinct. His friends and relations, however, instituted a periodical assembly in his memory, which continued to be held for many ages, and they called the days on which they came together Lycurgidae. Aristocrates, the son of Hipparchus, says that the friends of Lycurgus, after his death in Crete, burned his body and scattered the ashes into the sea, and that this was done at his request, and because he wished to prevent his remains from ever being carried to Sparta, lest the people there should change his polity, on the plea that he had come back, and that they were therefore released from their oaths. This, then, is what I have to say about Lycurgus. End of Lycurgus Part 3 Recording by Graham Redmond